0: Welcome to Live Free Ride Free where we talk to people who have lived self-actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them, how to live our best lives, find our own definition of success and most importantly find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on rupertisaacson.com. Welcome back to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who are living and have lived and continue to live self-actualized lives. What can we learn from them? How do they do it? How can they mentor us? How can we do it? It's always worth giving it up to the mentors. We have one today, someone rather extraordinary. We've got Sammy Leslie. You probably don't know who Sammy Leslie is because Sammy Leslie is one of those people who likes to do it from behind the scenes. And I had to kind of put a lasso around her, pull her a little bit forward. She's now sitting in her garden to talk to us. We're very lucky to have her. Sammy runs Castle Leslie. Castle Leslie is, on the face of it, a luxury, super luxury resort, hotel experience thing, legendary thing, really, in Ireland, which the great and the good and the celebs of this world go to, and also equestrians and also ordinary people like you and I. And it seems to run flawlessly. It seems that you arrive at this place. And you suddenly get to kind of live the baronial life, at least for an hour or two or a day or two or a, month or a week or two. It's Sammy who makes this experience possible, Sammy Leslie. It's not easy. Sammy has had all kinds of challenges in her life and yet manages to present a dream of how life should be to anyone who walks or drives through the gates of Carl Leslie. It doesn't matter whether they're coming in with a lot of money. It doesn't matter if they're just coming in for a drink at the bar. Everyone is treated the same. Everyone is treated like a lord or a lady. It's an extraordinary experience. It takes an enormous amount of skill to put this together, and it's something that sort of sets people free. I think anyone I've spoken to has come away from an experience at Carl has said this was a seminal experience in inspiration and how the relationship between human and landscape and history and mythology and all of these things have been sort of rolled into one experience seemingly seamlessly. And it's really all down to one person, Sammy Leslie. So I want to know how she does it. I want to know how we can learn to do similar things in our lives. So buckle up because this is a treat. Sammy, welcome to Live Free, Ride Free.
1: Thank you. Lovely to hear you.
0: Can you tell us who you are and why you are in this position doing this stuff?
1: That's always the most terrible question. I have no idea who I am or what I do. I just grew up with a you know very simple ethos is of all you can do in life is the best of what you have and by those around you and it doesn't matter if all you've got is in life is you know one bucket of water that you know, which could save somebody's life or. Grows some very valuable food, or or you've got a lot. It's it's just about understanding what you have and how you do the best. You know, we're we live in a very interconnected world, or we should live in a very interconnected world. And over the last couple of decades, it's just become so siloed. You know, nature's over there, and you know people are over there, and buildings are over here, and history's over there, and smarts over there, and and you know, climate change is something we don't even talk about. And I mean, here we really talk about two things, are fascinated by two things, biodiversity, which is the wonderful, complex, interwoven relationships of nature, and neurodiversity in the fact that we all have brains and we all process information differently. And, you know, same thing, a whole series of wonderful, interwoven, complex relationships. I I don't think you can silo you know, people and place and nature and planet without detrimental effects. So, yeah, I suppose my part of my family are American. And through the drones and the Ides, they're supposed to be Sioux and Iroquois descent. And when we were children, we grew up very much on the side of First Nation or Native or Indigenous American people. And we just wanted to kick the shit out of the cowboys. Sorry, I'm not allowed to say that, probably. So we're always told to think a bit deeper and look a bit further and gently question everything because life is not the series of black and white binary boxes we're trying to put it into. And it's not working as we can tell.
0: So you're coming out of a background with some roots in Native America, yet there you are sitting in County Monaghan in Ireland, Mm. on the border between North and Southern Ireland, running this vast estate and shouldering all the responsibilities that come with it because it's. It's a working estate, and it's a hotel, and it's a farm, and it's all of these things. As far as I know, you weren't supposed to be in this position. Tell us the story. Where were you born? How were you born? How did you end up doing this?
1: I am the the mistress's illegitimate child. If you want to put labels on people, I'm very proud of it. You know, my mum and dad absolutely fell in love. My dad an amazing first. Wife Agnes Bernal, Hungarian-German Jew, with her mum fled Berlin just about one of the last sort of trains to get out before things got really closed down. And an awful lot of their family didn't get down or didn't get out. So always grew up with that sort of understanding of the desperate cruelty that humans can reflect or can inflict on fellow human beings. And my mum and dad were not supposed to be, and I wasn't supposed to be either and dad went to see a psychic with Mum, and the psychic turned round and went hello Mr. Leslie yeah little another child on the way little brown eyed brown eyed girl and Mum was blonde and blue eyed and dad was like oh please <laughs> is it my wife or my mistress that are pregnant what's happening here and I came along so certainly a child that wasn't supposed to wasn't supposed to be, but I can totally understand if my if my mother had made other choices. I've always been too terrified to have children. Thought absolutely terrifies me. So yes, I was not the expected one to do this, and I just fell in love with place here. It is one of the most magical places on, you know, on the planet. There's this amazing little corner of Ireland that was carved out by the glaciers with glittering lakes and wonderful woodlands. And as children, we were feral children. I mean, it's, we left in the morning, and we probably grabbed a head collar or a bridle, and grabbed a pony, which was normally a scruffy rescue from somewhere. And we probably had a bit of a packed lunch somewhere, and we literally just disappeared. And as long as we were home before dark, and there was not too many, too much blood, and preferably no broken bones, nobody really noticed or or probably cared. It was it was an absolute idyllic childhood being allowed to be that free range in nature, and now I that... think
0: that's one of that that wasn't normal for the children of the landed gentry. What well, what one knows of that background is that one was required usually to have a, a loyalty first to caste, to clan, and then after that to family, and then after you know personal relationships. No, not so much. You seem to have come out of something very very different there.
2: My d- my dad
0: also.
1: My dad is probably, he's the third, but he's actually the fourth child. The third child was stillborn and is buried under a tree in Talbot Great Park in London because he was un- he was unbaptized, so therefore there was nowhere to bury him. So he again grew up quite free range as such. I think his father had sort of given up and he was handed over to a series of nannies. And his hair was dyed blonde until he was about five. And nobody noticed because if you were a nanny in Hyde Park, you were much in much higher status. Well, first to have the eldest boy, preferably blonde as well. And if you couldn't have that, you you had a blonde child and literally dad's hair was dyed blonde for the first five years of his life and nobody noticed. So and that was because, in London. Anyways, yeah, he he grew up he was born in nineteen twenty one, so it was just after the first world war. And I think he had a little bit of free range childhood in in many ways as well, because you know the grown-ups were tired and busy at that point remember our our in our world you know of, of big old houses, having a relationship with your child before they're seven can hold a conversation mix a, le- a fold a lettuce leaf with one try this again having a relationship with a child before the age of seven when they're supposed to be able to you know read the newspaper, fold a lettuce leaf with a fork and mix a good dry martini this wasn't something that one did really. You know, they were kind of put up with nannies until that point. And and they could be amazing, kind, wonderful people or desperately cruel. And one of dad's was quite cruel. For her, potty training was tying. If he he wet himself, she would tie the wet nappy to his face and make him stand in the corner. But that was sort of improving and,
0: you know, a good thing.
1: Yeah. That was his mother. That
0: was your grandmother.
1: No, that was his nanny.
2: Oh, that was his nanny. Okay. Gosh. Ouch. Yeah. His um, mother was.
1: And, the, you know, it's the type of thing somebody'd be in jail for now.
2: Indeed. No, but absolutely. Indeed.
1: Character building, as you
0: quite rightly say. Good. expect. So, how did that, how did, how did he then translate from this neglected, rather abusive upbringing in London to this extraordinary, wild, and magical estate? in Ireland?
1: Well, this was where they came in the summer. It was too cold, really, in the winter. And they came here for summer and holidays, and he absolutely loved it. And, and again, kind of just went farewell and disappeared off into the woods and out in the lake fishing and out swimming and up trees and, you know, on ponies and down to the farm and, you know, very much outside and, and, and a nature lover and really connected with the nature. And I think that's when he really fell in love with spiritualism. And that sort of, um, you know, through the American side of the family, that sort of, you know, First Nation spiritualism
0: and connecting connection to land. So your father, well, at what point did he then decide to just live at Castle Leslie and immerse himself in that landscape? And then how did you come along?
1: Well, if you go back to 1914, when the eldest boy was shot, the second boy didn't want it. He wanted to become a priest. The third boy had had polio. So then it was sort of put into an estate company to try and protect it. And then the next generation, my aunt was born in 1912, but she was a girl. And I was in my 40s before I realized she was the eldest child because the next one, Uncle Jack, was a boy. So I assumed he was the eldest. But he'd been a prisoner of war for five years and really couldn't cope with the sort of stresses of running the place. And it was just known as the hot potato because nobody really wanted it so then it went to my dad picked up the pieces and said i'll take it on and then i'm the fifth of six kids and while everybody loves and adores it you know the reality of four letter words like work and bill and
0: you know roof and you know things no, that scare be... me now with these words so
1: yeah. i love four letter words there's lots of good ones and you see at the end of the day people should follow their passion in life and their career and what they want to do and and not do what the world tells them they should do, because they're just going to be miserable for life.
0: So did your, did your dad, uh, he, it sounds like he managed to break free from that kind of tying diapers to your face type stringent upbringing, and he didn't inflict that on you or his other children, is it? Can you describe what the culture at Castle Leslie was when you were a girl growing up? How, how was it? What was going on there?
2: Well,
1: dad had, I suppose he found his his wings literally when he went into the RAF at 19 and got away, you know, went through the war and got away from the constraints of, of family as such. And then he went off and became a filmmaker and music maker in London. And then he came home and took over and he started a nightclub here in the 60s and then a hippie colony. So some of my nannies growing up, Bob and Aaron, you know, would have been, been part of the hippie colony. So it was quite sort of free thinking in a very, you know, the, the the Catholic Church in Ireland was not a kind church. And as we know, so many horror stories are unfolding all the time. And he stayed a million miles away from organized religion and just was quite a free spirit. And most importantly, he absolutely loved his horses.
0: Okay, tell us about the relationship of Castle Leslie and horses.
1: Oh, they've always, you know, since we rescued Margaret Queen of Scots in the 10 hundreds on the back of a horse which is how we ended up from Hungary into Scotland and eventually
2: here
0: say that again slowly
1: Bartholomew Leslie came over as a mercenary to bring a young girl over to marry King Malcolm of Scotland her name was Margaret and at some point he had to rescue her from a castle that was being besieged and he made a belt with three buckles and he threw her on the back of the horse and he shouted "Rip past the buckle and buggered off across the countryside. And when she became queen, she gave us a crest with three buckles and then granted him all the land for a mile around where his horse needed to stop to rest. And he rode west. I think he exhausted five horses.
0: She, um, became, she became queen of Scotland. Yeah. But, uh, and then uh, allotted him land in Northern Ireland.
1: No, in Scotland.
0: In Scotland. Okay. How did... Okay, okay, keep going.
1: Earl in those days... And then in the 1600s, one of them was a bishop and he was a bit feisty and they kept moving him around the place. He lived to the grand old age of, he was in his 100th year when he died. And he got moved over here and he fought Cromwell and then wrote to the restoration of the king. And when he was offered the Archbishop of Canterbury as, as as a reward, he went, no, 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 there's an old church and a lake in my the edge of my diocese. I just want to settle there. So he fell in love in the 1660s with, with here and that incredible light over that beautiful lake and bought the estate of Ridgeways for 2,000
2: pounds. It's a lot of money.
0: Oh yes. In those days, an unthinkable amount of money. Okay. So you grew up as a, the child of a hippie commune run by an Aristo who had a mistress who didn't quite mean to get pregnant, did. And then you came along and managed to grow up feral in this amazing place with all this history. Did you ever imagine you'd end up having to run the show? I, I presume that you must have seen as you grew up, despite it being feral, despite being able to take ponies and us, you must have seen it was a lot of work to run a place like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there was a sort of wonderful freedom of being feral around the estate. There was the incredible and probably the most amazing privilege of the kitchen table and You know, we were encouraged to sit and talk and ask questions to anybody that was there. And the kitchen table was always this amazing mix of people from all walks of life. And what was the
0: question? (laughs) The question was, did you ever, as you were a kid, imagine that you would end up running the place? And did you have a sense of, as a kid, just the sheer amount of effort it takes to run a place like that?
1: Well, So, so you know, there was the, the feral childhood, the incredible... Privilege the kitchen table and anybody and everybody that you met and you were allowed to ask questions and you know ch- to ask people about different religions and hear points and on the outside you know while inside the house was very open-minded outside the troubles were p- picking up speed okay and that other sort of 30 something years so no i just always loved the place and wanted to do it but and nobody else really seemed that interested. I mean, there's interest, but there's rolling up your sleeves and doing the four-letter word. But now, tell us, were, tell
0: us about the troubles. That, so, not everyone who's listening to this knows what the troubles yeah. were. We we did interview over on our Equine Assisted World podcast Terry Brosnan, who also grew up in the troubles. Yeah. Tell us about the troubles. What were the troubles, and how did they affect your place?
1: It started out as, as civil rights, and because it was a very a very unfair society. You know, Catholics were second-rate citizens and it was very unbalanced. And then it grew legs and violence became the normal way of dealing with things and, and, you know, and tit for tat and became very divisive and and divided people and communities and, you know, raged for about 30-something years with the loss of about 3,500 lives and, you know, probably... 10, ten, twenty times of that people seriously injured and traumatized?
2: Right. So
0: you you were you were living growing up in this beautiful place, but right on the border of mm. Northern and Southern Ireland there. How did the troubles, the Protestant Catholic troubles, seep into that magical world? It's it was
1: very funny because I, you know, I'm from a family of eight face and probably as many nationalities. There's still a few question marks. So we grew up in a world that was very open and eclectic and, and you know, multi-faith, multi-racial. And then you walked out the door and you went, are they going to like me because they think I'm Catholic and hate me because they think I'm English Protestant? Or are they going to love me because of the Churchill-Wellington connection and they think I'm English Protestant and hate me because they think I'm Catholic? In fact, I'm neither of the above. So you're always doing this dance trying to figure out You'd be incredibly careful about what you said to who, and because somebody would pigeonhole you in one side or the other. So it was a, it was a, it was an interesting time. You know, but, yeah, yeah, did, did,
0: did violence creep onto the estate itself?
1: Not really. We were very lucky. I mean, there were definitely neighbours where, you know, there were horrendous murders and houses burnt and
0: bombs and yeah, very unpleasant things, but. What do you right. think, what do you think made Colossal Leslie a haven? Why didn't the trouble spill onto the estate?
1: I think because over the generations, they've just they've always married. A, a really interesting women over the years, you know, not the diminutive long eggs, long legs, fresh eggs, need to you know, bre- breeding machines. So Christina Leslie was a widow in 1940 and, sh- and with children from her husband's first marriage. And their marriage. So I think she had seven or nine children under the age of 16. And she ran the estate and she did an awful lot of good work. And she did the best she could in really desperate circumstances. You know, and there were desperate landowners and people who just never even came to Ireland. They had no understanding of the land. They had no understanding of the the poverty and the hunger. And about a third of estates went bankrupt. About a third of estates didn't care. And then there was a cohort of them that really wanted to try and do the right thing. And she was certainly up there with them, and we've done a lot of research into you know her life and her work. And she was an incredible person. I mean, this is back to the terrible dangers of monocultures. You know, potato was a monoculture. It was an incredible food. Potatoes and buttermilk are a perfect protein. You know, it was the highest food value per acre of anything grown. It made a lot of sense in so many ways, but monoculture leaves you very vulnerable.
0: So you're saying. If if I'm getting my history right, that there was a history in the estate of when troubled times happened, like the Irish potato famine, the people of Castle Leslie, in particular, the women of Castle Leslie, were seen to have stepped up to help the community. It it did that, but that was, you know, a good hundred years or 120 years before the troubles you know, of, of the 1970s to 80s and so on. Why would the good works of, of a previous generation, several generations back, matter to the generation fighting the Troubles? What?
1: Because it was recent
0: history in so
1: many ways. It, you know, it so changed the country in so many ways. Desperate loss of life, desperate immigration, awful things happened in so many different ways. So, no, it's, it was very recent history in so many ways.
0: Okay, so, so, so pe- people was, were still feeling <laughs> the potato famine 120 years later and saying, well, because the Leslie family did the right thing and fed people, we're not going to go there and burn that house down, basically. Is, is that more or less what it was? Yep. Or?
1: First, well, the first time houses were burned was the 1920s after Ireland got independence. So they had a whole spate of burning. They burned about 400 houses. Yeah. And supposed people came to burn it and people were stopped burning it. So yeah, it would, it would have been part of it. Also, my grandfather had become a Catholic. He'd stood for the National Seat in Derry and spoke, as Gail Gore, he spoke fluent Irish, part of the Irish Language Commission. So, but his first cousin was Winston Churchill. So you had this real sort of dichotomy of lots of people on different sides. So I would hope to think, because obviously I wasn't around at the time, that, you know, it's because they were reasonable people and tried to do the right thing. In the 1890s, or sorry, 1790s, we did a thing called the Act of Union, which was trying to get rid of the Irish Parliament because it was becoming too powerful. So we did two things. We tried to put a bill to Parliament that absentee landlords pay higher taxes. If they weren't going to live in Ireland and work their land and be part of it, they should make, pay a much higher tax that stayed in Ireland. That went down like a partner spacesuit and then in the act of Union they were offered ten thousand pounds in an earldom to vote to get rid of the Irish Parliament and they went no stuff it so I think in their own way they've tried to you know do the right thing by those around them and and buy here it would have been very easy to take and there's you know there's a whole series of a lot of research on what they call the castleway bribes and who took the bribes and you know politics at the time was it was you know
0: who could who could pay the price who could Yeah, Mm. yeah. that that, that Uh, was Georgian politics. I I don't think much has changed. But so basically, it seems that the Leslie family then seems to have had an unusually good relationship through massive political upheavals and violence with the local community.
1: Yeah, I think if you look at the original states that are still here, and there's probably only 12 or 15 sort of on this sort of scale, They probably were all here because they wanted to do the right thing through through the generations. Yeah, I mean, it would, you know, even you know the last round, it would be easier to sort of sell and bugger off, but that would be that just wouldn't be the right thing to do.
0: So, how aware of all that were you growing up as a as a child? In the, you must have learned. Did you learn all this later, or was all this history imparted to you (laughs) as part of your feral childhood? You sort of.
1: It was a real dichotomy. And yes, you learned, well, you used to do tours of the house. You got money off tourists if you did it. And, but you learned all the history and you learned all the paintings. You learned who everybody was. And yeah, that you, we're all just fellow human beings on this planet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, uh, yeah.
1: All trying to.
0: Yeah, no, it, 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 it's, an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary corner of the world in so many ways because it's, it's so magical, it's so beautiful, it's so wild and at the same time it's so steeped in the messinesses of the realities of what humans get into with each other and yet there the estate has stood and there it still is. Something I know about estates is that they generally don't make money. And often end up getting sold. You, your dad was a hippie. He had the hippie commune, as you said, the four letter word, work bills, that sort of thing. Not perhaps the most popular.
1: Oh, he, he worked, he paid bills and he tried to keep the roof on, but you know, he had, it was quite visionary in what he wanted to do. Was an amazing, very beautifully designed sort of hotel that looked like the Hanging ba- gardens of Babylon and an amazing golf course. And, all of the rest. And he had all sorts of bankers and plans done and was sort of heading off down that road when the, when the troubles hit. They were t- bulldozing the land for the foundations for
0: different buildings. Okay. So, so your dad actually had the idea to oh, lo- get into tourism and then the troubles hit and put the kibosh on that.
1: Yeah. Two things, tourism and nature reserves, as they were called in those days, okay. which of course why do you want to protect nature? There's so much, but doesn't, it doesn't really make a difference. So, yeah. So, you know, he had an awful lot of vision. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have the sort of business skills but necessary that, you know, that we would now, but where did you learn them? You know, remember they had no education. He had a, a year in university and then off to the RAF. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, the world, we, the amount of courses and support we have to nurture young businesses and entrepreneurs now is fabulous. In his day, there was, absolutely nothing and everybody was out to try and fleece you yeah
2: yeah absolutely
1: so so
0: so he comes up with this vision he's about to get going on it he Mm -hmm. finds backers then the troubles hit and now Mm -hmm. nobody wants to go to this part of Ireland. why doesn't the estate go down what keeps it above water
1: two things selling land furniture paintings and also you started a business around equestrian riding holidays because you know, some of the bravest people are people that ride and especially, you know, from Northern Ireland because they're so used to being ballsy. And we had a lot of Swiss riders as well through a Swiss agent. That all So I grew up with the equestrian centre and lots of people coming here to ride horses. And because of the beautiful land here and there's a sort of amazing amount of timber and huge amounts of cross country and the days before insurance got silly, lots of people used to come here for you know, riding and hacking and, and cross country,
0: you know, it's it, I I grew up in the UK riding. And so, yeah, I remember seeing the adverts for Castle Leslie in the equestrian magazines as a boy and, and, and thinking, oh God, it looks amazing. I'd love to go there. These sweeping, you know, views and people jumping cross country jumps and it just all looking so amazing and so perfect and thinking, oh, I'd really like to go there one day and i sort of it, it had always been kind of in the back of my yeah Castle leslie and the, so it's, it's amazing to me to end up there with you last year yep. i go actually there's that little boy in me you know that was looking at that ad you know back in the 1980s going yes i made it there as you say that was before the days of insurance and yeah. liability and people suing each other and that sort of thing taking people for cross-country riding holidays isn't exactly the safest business bet in the world because people are going to fall off and they are going to get hurt. It's just, there's gravity. It's just the nature of the beast. Your dad started this equestrian center specializing in this. What happened to it? Because it seemed on the outside very successful to me as a boy, seeing the ads, you know, and and wanting to go.
1: Absolutely. By, where are we? 84. I was in England training. I got my AI and then got my AI and talent. And uh, I phoned home to say I got my I.I. at 18, which was quite young. And he phoned and said, oh, but I'm really sorry I've had to sell the equestrian center. So I thought, well, I will buy that back. And it took me 20 years to to buy it back. And they were really gracious about it. And then we built the, the new hotel wrapped around it and the new yard that that you've seen. We got some support from our tourist board for the indoor arena and the and the yard. Which meant we could build a sort of a four or five star facility that normally in those days only people, you know, in the top competition yards managed to get into. We just wanted to make a really good yard accessible for everybody.
0: Now, so whether it's you, 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 you threw out some acronyms there, which not everyone listening will, will know. So I just want to, just for the, the listeners who don't know quite what that language meant. Okay. So the equestrian professional world in the UK. Most people get what's called a BHS British Horse Society AI Assistant Instructor as a sort of basic, and then there's an II Intermediate Instructor, and then there's an I Instructor. Mm-hmm. And there aren't many BHS Is out there to be a BHS Is like a big deal. And you got yours at what?
1: No, well, I got my AI at seventeen, and my II at eighteen, and I wanted my I by twenty-one, and I wanted to be a fella before I was thirty. But I had I came, the plans changed. I came instead of going to Germany to train at 18, I came home and started a yard because I just knew that if I didn't come home and stake my claim, probably more would have got sold, and I didn't want to be in a situation where I found out about it through a phone call after it had happened.
0: So All right, so you get your iI, which is a a major deal at 18, yes, I, I remember. There was maybe a few IIs in the part of England that I grew up in, and they were all fearsome, ironclad English horsey women bellowing to each other as Mastodon bellows yeah, to Mastodon exactly, across the primeval swamp. And, you, and they were all, you know, it had taken them into their, into their 30s or 40s to get there. It's, obviously, it was a major achievement. Get that. Well, also, they, go talent
1: ahead. is an incredible school. I mean, talent, uh, the equestrian centre of talent is, is phenomenal so talent talent so pamians and molly Sivrights equestrian center so i was there for four months and you know it's an amazing boot camp and they produced incredible riders one after the other i'm not one of them so but you know horses were never going to be able to take, make the sort of money that i needed to put the place back together so it was always horses hospitality and heritage
0: what made you feel, I mean, the hospitality industry is notoriously demanding. It grinds people down. I've had lots of friends who were chefs, hoteliers, that sort of thing, and it took a toll. And uh, the, the world of horses, the equestrian world, similarly, you get bashed up. You, it, it looks glamorous from the outside, but we know that it's, it's a lot of shit shoveling and falling off and getting trodden on and so forth, and there's massive Financial overheads. So to come in at 18, 19, and say, okay, I'm going to get this equestrian center that's just been sold.
2: I started Back with another
0: year. How did you, how did you, let alone going into hotel management, you know, making a hotel, how did you begin? Oh, the wonderful thing about young is being, fo- yeah was the young
1: and fool hearty. So at 18, there was another stable yard in the back of the estate, which has been the sort of working horses yard. The one where the equestrian centre was, was the agent's yard for his horses. Then there was a second yard for the carriage horses. And then the third yard was the hunters and the working horses. So I took the old third yard on the back of the estate and um, and started there. And I got a grant from the county enterprise board. I didn't actually, I got a, an co grant for about twelve hundred quid, and started the yard and worked up from there. So, well,
0: I see, how did you find your clientele? How did you find your your stuff? How did you how did you run a team as just a kid well, like that? Well,
1: i I'd been out of school five years, four years at that stage. So, in my head, I wasn't a, I wasn't a kid. I left school at fifteen. So, teaching. So, teaching was something I'd always loved and, and did quite well. And also flat work and, and schooling and, and rebreaking horses that everybody had mucked up. And I ended up having some nice horses through. And then I sold a horse out to Canada. And at 21, I just knew I needed to get away and travel. I always wanted to come home. So I went out to Canada after PK, the little bay mare that went out. And worked in Canada for a while. And then Virginia and then San Francisco and out to Australia. And traveled and worked and traveled and worked for about three years.
0: Why wasn't the 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 financially troubled estate sold out from under you while you you were doing that? How did you you take a risk that it might might just not have been there to come back to?
1: No, I knew that I needed to get away and travel. I mean, he must have sold something quite well to be able to survive for a couple more years. And then he actually sold something that sold okay. And then I got to go to hotel school in Switzerland. My sister got to film school and my other sister got to university and then back into financial trouble. And he got a big offer from a Japanese corporation to become, I think, their cultural liaison center for Europe. And I I shortened my course in Switzerland. So I doubled my hours. I was doing 60 hours a week for the study. And then I remember I was down in the fridges downstairs and I can remember what I was getting. And a phone call came in and he said, are you coming home? And I said, just give me six months. This was November, December. Or maybe January. So just give me six months to, to summer, and I'll be home. And I came home when I was twenty-four. Okay, ancient I were.
0: And you, you so, got yeah, really in, in in the old days in Ireland, you'd have been an old mate. What? So did you get did you get to work alongside your dad? running uh, it up again uh, and putting getting
1: his
2: back been, on its feet.
1: Not really. I mean, Dad was forty-eight when I was born, so. What age was he at that point? I was twenty-four, so he was sort of early seventies. And am I right? Late six.
0: You're talking to the wrong person for maths, yeah.
1: 48, 60. Yeah, he was early, early 70s. And it was, because I remember doing his 70th birthday. And he also when he'd smoked, which if you've got you know weaker lungs is is not the cleverest. He nearly died when we were children from double pneumonia. And the you know, doctor said, you continue to smoke and you've got six months. He'd also you know always had asthma. And then he got emphy- emphysema and he lost about a third of his lung capacity. So big, damp, cold house. I mean, the problem with damp air is there's less oxygen in it and it's much harder to breathe. And he really couldn't cope with the winters here. So he was around my first winter and in a ski suit. He literally got into a red ski suit and lived, into, lived in it for the winter. Your body self-cleans after a while. And then he'd come home for a bit in the summers. So he died in 201. So I was 34. I would just been home 10 years at that stage. So, yeah.
0: So Early. Y- y- you found yourself at 24. Mm-hmm. Um, saying, so, okay, I'm going to take this huge lumbering place. It's yeah. very beautiful. And I'm going to make a world-class hotel. (laughs) And the question is, how do you even begin?
2: uh,
1: It was a lovely old saying that the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So you just do little bits. So I started with horses the first winter. And then I did tea rums. I got a grant for 5,000 for the town tea enterprise board. And then I sold my dad's card for the other five grand. Then bit by bit he left to five of us so I got an agreement with the rest of the family and then I started six bedrooms and then I bought out all the freehold from everybody and then just bit by bit you just keep picking away that's how all you, you how can. did you
0: find the guests how did you how did you find the staff how did you find the team how did you run that you make it sound so all, easy it couldn't have been
1: there's always listen having children I wasn't brave enough to do that in all the wonderful forms that they that they come in and they, there's a wonderful proof of local people who came to work from, I mean, some of our team were 14 when they started, still in contact with them and their mothers now, which is wonderful to see. And yeah, we remember we were in an area where there weren't an awful lot of jobs at that time and just built it up. But, you know, I, I don't make it all look wonderful. Now I have incredible CEOs who's been here 15 years at this point. It's his birthday tomorrow. And there's a team of probably 200 on the estate. So they're the ones that really make it look fabulous and seamless and, and wonderful.
0: I mean, how many people were working on the estate when you began to put
1: it? Uh, a housekeeper still lived here. He has been retired twice, but kept coming back because the house was very much her life. And I very much understand that. Who else was here? Jackini, one of the old foresters, was a wonderful character. Eugene Dinkin, the old head gardener's son, was ranting about. Mrs. Dinkin, his mum, was on the back, in the back gate lodge. Harry, who's retired farm manager, he was in one of the gate lodges. The wonderful Gormley clan where Jackie started in the yard. She's been here since I was 12, very much part of parcel. And she's in the stewards in the dairy house. And that's theirs. Uh, so, yeah, there were people scattered around the gate lodges and me.
0: Okay. And you built it up to two hundred. Incredible! I know. That, I know that you battled. it's not Say that again.
1: It's a huge team effort. It's not just me.
0: Yeah, but I know. I know what you're saying, and you're very modest. At the same time, it's 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 it's, 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 it's been grown and coaxed and nurtured. So you pull this estate, this sort of old basically bankrupt estate, up by its bootstraps. You managed to at beginning at age twenty four begin with a hotel and equestrian center which is not an easy thing you mentioned that you left school at 15 i know that you you've, you've talked to me about your struggles with dyslexia talk to us about that and, and and how did that inform your self-perception and your feeling of yourself as an entrepreneur and
1: you know what's really funny is it really interesting is you know i love the now the fact we can talk about neurodiversity and the we all, the human mind processes information in so many different ways. And, and we're starting to starting to understand some of them, the entre- I'm part of an entrepreneur cohort, and they were looking at, there's a lot of research being done instead of the percentile with the people that think differently know, whatever the norm is supposed to be in the first place, but the entrepreneur brain and that sort of thinking differently is, is, is huge correlation, you know? i don't you know people talk about thinking outside the box i've never found the box i don't know what the box looks like it's just so when you go through school and you come from a house like this it's not easy because they go the fact you think you are you you know you're from the big house you think you're special you know dean swift the great writer in the 1700s complains that our house has loads and loads of shelves upon which sit many books written by the Leslie's, all about themselves, you know, and they went on to write other 200 books after that. So to come from a very literary family and not be able to read and write the same way everybody else does wasn't easy. And there was, you know, you tried to say you're dyslexic and then people just said, oh, you thought you are special. And so, no, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't the easiest time, but then you went home into this wonderful free-thinking world where anything was possible and then you just got ponies and the great thing about horses is they don't read and write and they don't speak english and you know they see pictorially and they see shapes and textures and ratios and you know they think in a you know they don't need to do the academic bollocks i mean look at you know, just watch any you know horse going you know cross country at a high level or dressage at a high level or show jumping or you know a, a barrel racing any of the the sports and you go god you know their brain function is incredible there because their brain controls their body i mean they're amazing they process so much information at such high speed and they don't read and write and they don't speak english and
0: right um, but so they, they're also not they, expected they to english. run businesses though are they i mean so so
1: so i think it was that perception that ridiculous perception of what we understand intelligence to be, you know, this is so this whole thing about intelligence and you have to be intelligent and intelligence was linked to academia, There, we're now understanding there is so many different forms of intelligence and the, I think the absolute hard ridged of intelligence equaled academia in school was very damaging for a lot
0: of kids. I could see how coming back from a school where you're basically being told you're stupid, you know. And I remember when I was a boy at school, yeah. dyslexia was considered to be by a lot of teachers stupidity, and now we know it's actually sort of part of genius syndrome. But of course, it, it wasn't looked at that way. And I could see how coming back to this, you know, fairy world with with ponies and hippies and amazing could give you a safe haven. But then, of course, you had right. to go out and you know cope with even within the horse world sitting exams doing that sort of thing and then of course you go off to, to switzerland and you go to catering school how did you how did you function there
1: but well, i think with the equestrian in my day it was all oral or practical mm. which was great or, or teaching and so you didn't have to do the written which was brilliant. brilliant so even in a level there was i don't think in my day there was any written papers and in hotel management a lot of it at the beginning was practical. But I learned all the work rounds, and I learned how to. They didn't mark you on your reading and write. You know your writing skills, but they learned how to to learn as such in the way that was needed. And I got a a, a five point eight average out of six the, by year three, which was not bad. The languages tripped me up. All languages brought my scores down. They just. What people forget is just I'm. This is my theory, and I'm sticking to it. His dyslexic brains are very logical and that they're always looking, taking vast amounts of data that most other people don't even see when they look at something, you know, whether it's shape, color, texture, size, and they're always trying to process it into a form of logic. And there's so many different logics that you can take out of a series of data. As we know from data mining now that that's my theory, that that's what we're always trying to do. And then that makes the place a sort of a safe and a calm place because you can put things in an order that they're supposed to be and, you know, that the world says they should be. And <laughs> language has no, no logic to it It's it, other than German.
0: Right, exactly. which uh, is what I'm struggling with right now. But it, it, exactly, so you, you go to Switzerland, dyslexic, and then you're expected to do stuff in other languages and you're juxtaposing letters and so on because you're taking in all this information. And yet you achieve this high grade point average. How?
1: I just studied. I mean, we had 40 hours of lectures and practical a week. And then I doubled my course and did 60. And then I you know, started eight in the morning and then two-hour lunch break. But I did library for lunch and you know, took a sandwich in and studied. You just work. You know, and then I'd work till sort of six o'clock on a Saturday night, or eight o'clock on a Saturday night, go out for dinner, go clubbing, sleep or ski the next day and start again. So, you know, you were doing 80, 100 hours a week between classes and study, but that's but that's what it took. I mean, that's what, what you do in horses and that's what you do in hospitality in the early days.
0: Sure. At what point did you find, though, that the dyslexia was no longer tripping you up in any way, was not impeding you? Was there a, a point where you were like, actually it's just not even an issue i've been told this is or or was I'll it a slow you, thing that was more no, no,
1: no. Oh, definitely it's always there you learn workarounds. i mean i've got my own email language and my own written language everybody on my team knows that because i read by shape recognition and placement of word and if you don't give me the context at the beginning of a document you uh-huh. can get me so once there's context then say it says cat at the top of a document You know, all those shapes are going to be related to cat. So then your brain recognizes all all of the words that relate to cat or what a cat might get up to. And therefore, it figures out the shapes of the words and then it puts them in. So they, you know, you can see words that are similar shapes. There could be lots of things, but I know they're related to cat. So it could be only one of 20 words. And I know the context. So I'll work out what's actually on the paper. So no, we... We don't read by letters on a page. I mean, how ridiculous would that be?
0: Seriously. Oh, unimaginative. I Indeed. What about numbers? Did your dyslexia go to numbers as well? And, and no, because
1: was... I, learned, I learned early on that numbers are ratios. There's 10, you know, 1 to 10, 1 to 12. After that, everything is a ratio within that. Mm. So you learn all the ways of multiplication and division and all the rest, which of course you lose once you start using calculators. But numbers are highly logical. Okay, two plus two will always be
0: four. Depends on your accountant, but, but yeah.
1: depends <laughs> on your accountant. Um, and two and uh, two and two could be twenty-two, but two letters beside each other could be a whole load of things.
0: Right? Do you find, or did you find, then the same difficulty in reading and understanding nuance? emotion, sarcasm, that sort of thing with people, was that never a problem?
1: Oh, absolutely. It depends on the writer. I've just finished reading Ben Goldsmith's God is an Octopus, and it is one of the most magical, sublime books I think I've ever read because of his ability to portray incredibly complex situations like the death of his very fabulous and wonderful daughter at fifteen in a farm accident to his going through the desperate grief and really falling in love with an understanding nature and, and rewilding. And he ended up you know in debt the Department of Food and Agriculture in, in the UK for five years. But because his English is so, I don't know, it's just so easy to read. So you really get the highs and the lows. There are other writers that try and write simple stories but use complicated English and you're sitting there going, why is that word there? What does that mean? You know, and, and the words just I, I, I don't understand their flow of English. So God, give me, I would I think I just pull my tail toenails out if you asked me to read Shakespeare or Old English. Yeah, I love his works in a play because you can figure out what they're trying to say because of the body language and the setting and the costume and there's lots of other ways to read the emotion within a play that you just can't read in a, in a book.
0: And that's interesting because I know, I know you to be a reader and yet there you are with dyslexia. Was there a point where reading kicked in as a pleasure? Studying
1: veterinary notes for, I was veterinary notes for horse owners, right? Reading all the the manuals for anatomy and veterinary and stuff for teaching, they're all very logical. I think, you know, somebody like for me, Patricia Cromwell, the, the crime writer again, writes in a a language that makes sense to me so but there are other writers I just cannot get beyond sort of page three because I can't make sense of the 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 order of the that they use words it's and big words
2: marmalade
0: marmalade yeah that's a that's it's some, a big that, word it's a word that makes me it's a it's word for a cat isn't it I think that's it mm-hmm. um, yeah marmaduke and marmalade they're both types of cats did you isn't marmaduke a, a dog yeah marmaduke's a Great Dane, I think, isn't it? But maybe a Great Dane that eats cats and therefore they taste that like marmalade. Yes, exactly. When you were a kid, growing up feral in the woods there, were you reading then or did it, did it kick in no, later? No, no. Okay.
1: Later, oh, I think it was always, oh God, I was always reading books on horse training for the first number of years of my life. And then when I was traveling, you probably started to read more for pleasure. Especially a long train journey or somewhere or sitting in a train station or backpacking. You know, backpacking can be a very slow moving process. So definitely started to read more there. And wanting to read books about the country and the culture that I was going to see. I made the reading Shogun before I backpacked around Asia.
0: So it kicked in for you sort of more in your 20s. That's the dyslexia side. Now, I know that you also battled cancer. And that's a difficult thing in any context. But when you've got the weight of a large business on you and the livelihoods of lots of people and the wealth well, and, and, and the land, because it's, it's not just a business as in people and money, you're, you're looking after landscape, you're looking after woodlands, you're looking after livestock. You're... Talk us through that. Well, I,
1: I'm been in and out of hospital since my late 20s with some form of extreme exhaustion and then in my early 40s I did an amazing thing called the Hoffman process which is probably for me definitely it's a sort of week-long course and you just literally get stuck into understanding how your behavior works and the things that you've learned and what serves you and what trips you up and and you know Sort of how your brain makes sense of things that are confusing. And I think that helped me let go of a lot of the sort of confusion of, you know, when I was younger. So funny enough, when I got a diagnosis of cancer, breast cancer, I think it was also a bit like, because I've done so much veterinary, it's just like, well, this is just something we need to deal with. And it hadn't started to spread. Although I found the lump in June, went to the doctor, 10 days to get an appointment. I had a Oh, I had a problem with the ingrown now that was really annoying and very painful, and something else. And I actually forgot to say about the lump. And then Look, in notes, November, I was uh, seeing somebody in New York at the time, and he said, "Look, can't, I just he did, couldn't do the long distance bit and other bits." And he said, "Oh, I meant to say by the way, as he was walking out the door, there was a bit of a lump. I think maybe you should get it checked." And I went. That's the lump I should have got. I meant to get checked in June and it was quite a bit bigger. So I went home and uh, I just didn't tell anybody I told one person because I can't do all the faffing about it. And I went through surgery and came out on 24th of December and ran a Christmas drinks party here for a hundred and something people, which starts their an annual Christmas drinks party for everybody locally. And then a few days later, a friend hugged me and burst my stitches at a party. Yeah. I was still not trying to tell anybody, but ended up back in hospital. No, it was fine. I mean, the, 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 it's a very guided process, you know, surgery, chemo and radio and, and the different drugs. And you come out the other end. And I hate to say, I loved being bald. I mean, I, uh, I struggle with long hair and I've always got my hair tied up and had always very hairy legs and stuff. So somebody said... Me
0: too, yeah.
1: Yeah, but... <laughs> Yours is to be. Somebody said, if you wax your legs the couple of days before each chemo session, you'll end up with no leg hair because they're, they're too weak to grow back. So that, that was an upside. But then a year later, I was diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis, and that was a bit more annoying because that's a bit more shadow box and you never quite know what tricks it's going to, to pull on you. So, and, and it's for life. I mean, there's no, as yet, there's no, no sort of, you know, I'm 12 years after breast cancer now, so I don't even think of it. MS is a little bit more annoying.
0: Yeah, and so MS is in my family, and I know the exhaustion factor as well Absolutely. as the other things. And I also know the exhaustion factor of, of, of being an entrepreneur yeah. and working in hospitality, let alone at the scale that you're doing it there. How do you possibly cope with that?
1: Oh, I forgot was- <laughs> I slept for three and a half months last year. That worked really well, and then I moved my office home to my garden shed. Do you like my sky?
0: I do like your sky. Yes, I wish. I wish the. I wish the listeners could see it. There's a sky paint. She's, Sammy's sitting in her garden shed, which is her office, and she has the sky painted on the ceiling and the forest painted on the wall. It's wonderful.
1: Well, it's well, the walls wallpaper, and then the sky. Yeah, for blue sky thinking. So you do. Th- yeah, I moved home my office home which is great and my kitchen or my garden table became the boardroom during our outside boardroom during COVID but I do have to be a little careful because I could go kitchen office garden kitchen bed kitchen office for a
0: week and then realize I actually haven't left the premises for a week it's
2: it's,
0: it's, it's a flippant thing to say though to say well I slept for three and a half months you you and I both know you can't do that because of the Demands and pressures of, of the job and running everything that has to be run. How oh,
1: no, do you and the, I did and there was how,
0: how how did you manage to achieve that though? Given um, I there I must I be I'm listeners who are back. battling with this right now.
1: um No, I'm, I've got I've, I have an amazing team and they've really got my back. And I have an amazing person who helps me in my house and and
0: you know they must have to. needed decisions from you. They must have needed no. really. 100%. No, it could very, run at that very, point.
1: Very rarely. Yeah. It wasn't three and a half months in a row. It was. You know, a day here, a week there, right. you know, it was it was in and night. Um, and they kind of also tend to know when I'm getting a bit wobbly. So, you know, they'll, they'll sort of front load stuff. So, yeah, even yesterday I was on the computer and my eyesight shattered. So it's like a clear kaleidoscope and everything moves around the place. Mm-hmm.
2: Like,
1: right. I can't, I can't, and I was, I was, I was proofreading a, a spreadsheet of figures. I was like, this just isn't working because
2: they're
0: all moving all over the place. So. Just go to bed and I got it done today. So, yeah. What would you say? I mean, there there will be listeners who are facing cancer, MS and other fairly serious challenges who are trying to keep businesses, jobs, families and so on together. As someone who's made go of that, what's what are your tips?
1: I think there's all, you know, if, if you've been a half decent person in life, I think there's always a lot more people around you that want to help than you think. And sometimes you need to ask and sometimes you need to let people help. Sometimes you need to show your vulnerability and just, go. you know, my team know that if they hear me, my voice goes to a certain level and I'm slow and I'm starting to not be able to complete a sentence and I'm trying to fight through it because I, you know, you just, you do fight through, I've got work to do and I need to keep going. Somebody will quietly say maybe, which, you know, we'd like to get to you or do you need to take a break or...
2: And I not <laughs> uh, at some point? You know, and I now
1: start, I just know you you, you can't fight extreme exhaustion. You just end up being a cranky cat. And I apologise to everybody out there who have ever been ultra cranky too when I'm too tired because I'm a thundering bitch when I'm exhausted. But it's normally because, you know, to actually be able to you know, last year I had a a week where it took me five, four days to get from my kitchen as far my bedroom to the kitchen for a cup of tea. You know, I found a cup of sweets in the bathroom on day three. And that was kind of the first thing I'd eaten in three days. So that's just when it hits like that, there's just, there's no point in fighting it. And um, you just have to roll up and go to bed.
0: I mean, that that's an interesting thing that you say, ask for help and allow your vulnerability to show. Because, you know, you, we, we all of us who grew up in, in our generation were brought up with a stoic value system. And it's it. It, 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 very much stiff upper lip, pull your socks up. And, you know, it, it it doesn't come easy to do that. And definitely also when we were younger, we would have actually been penalized for that. At what, sorry, I think there's a lot of people who'd be listening who, like us would struggle with asking for help. At what point did you manage to sort of give up that rugged um, individualist thing and think, say, "Okay, I'm just gonna fuck it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ask."
1: I think well, with breast cancer, I certainly had to back off and and you know let my team do more. And do you know what, they're all way more talented than me and much better at the job than I was. And you know they've always shone and grown, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see. MS has been a bit more of a struggle, I think, because the extreme exhaustion is quite insidious, and there are times you push through it and you get and and it lifts and you're like, oh, I can keep going, I can get to that meeting, I can get to that party, I can get to the shops, I can. And then there's other times there's just absolutely no point whatsoever, just. And then I got a thing called Nora Ring that tracks my sleep and activity and heart rate and all of the rest. So I can, it starts to tell me when I'm starting to dip. And that's when I go, okay, I'm not recovering as I should. Um, I've just slept 14 hours and I'm still exhausted. So I need to be a bit more careful. So certainly being able to, and then you can flick back through, you know, the last two or three weeks or last month or eight weeks and you kind of go, yeah, okay, I need to be a bit more sensible here. So Wearable technology, the the joys the, the of bio, it? It bioelectronics.
0: Yeah, biofeedback, is it? Is it biofeedback?
1: Where they use electrical pulses to measure the chemical reactions that are happening with it. Right. Remember? Big words like marmalade. <laughs> that's, <crazy. laughs> that, that, that's it. And, you know, it's 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 been great in, you know, monitoring. And at times you think, I've got a really good night's sleep and you're looking and it goes, no, you didn't. And then by lunchtime, you're we going, no, I didn't. Yeah, you're right.
0: Interesting. Do you, do you, I, th- I think that's, there's probably a lot of people listening now go, actually, that that's me. I've, I often wake up exhausted. Why do I wake up exhausted? What is going, going on? Th-
1: th- there are great things that very unobtrusively measure what's happening when you're asleep because we go through this whole cycle of different sleep types and You know you can get a great night's sleep but your alarm wakes you up in the middle of deep sleep and you feel like you know being hit in the head by a mallet is just you've woken up the wrong point in your sleep cycle and you know it tells you when your midpoint is and your heart rate and your body rate and your body temperature and oxygen saturations and in a very very simple way and then you can start to see the sort of patterns and i inject with interferon every two weeks and it is interesting to to watch what it says And you're going, yeah, I feel like I've been hit by a bus. And just because I have been hit by a bus, it's okay to
2: just go, yeah, my body's struggling for the next two days. Would 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 you say
0: that your main strategy for keeping up with work while having MS is managing sleep, managing exhaustion, managing tiredness?
1: Managing sleep. I do a lot of juicing, so I hate cleaning my juicer. So do it probably every two weeks and then freeze it, which is fantastic. fantastic. And then have to remember to take it out of the freezer, but I do most days. So just trying to always make sure I I get, you know, lots of good nutrients and looking after gut health. You know, it's a little bit like soil health. We're starting to realize how complex it is and, and how important it is for, you know, for our body health and our brain health.
0: Beyond taking probiotics, then uh, what what do you do for your gut health? What tips do um, you
1: have for the rest? Oh well, I've on a new one now that's around repairing gut because I've definitely got leaky gut. Then you know it depends. It's really good liquid pro- 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 probiotics that are survive getting into your gut. Lots of fibre because your gut needs it, and listening to your body and just seeing what foods work and don't work.
0: What what foods do you find don't work for you? What, would would you say that there's foods that I don't
1: a think lot of different. us? Yeah, modern don't. gluten. We forget yeah. that wheat has been systematically bred for a long time to have a higher and higher gluten level. The breads when we baked it in the old days had a you know eight to twelve hour proof. So you know the, the yeast reacted with the gluten differently, and you know actually stretched it. So modern bread, commercial breads are one hour approved. There's an awful lot of chemicals in it. The gluten is very high. You can often get a glanophosphate sprayed on the, the bread before they because if you do it in the small levels, the wheat thinks it's dying, so it shoves all of the nutrients up into the grain head. So you get a bigger grain head and a, a bigger yield. And that's legal in some countries and you don't know where your bread your breads actually come from. So, you know, what was one of the most Magical, purest things and the most delicious things that man developed over the years, which was breads, which was water and yeast and bread and flour and tiny bit of salt, where it mightn't even have yeast. I mean, look at all the magical breads around the world. And, you know, we've turned it into this monster substance that so many additives and things in. And, and I think for a lot of people, if you've got delicate gut health, whether, you know, we just don't digest it, I certainly don't digest it.
0: It seems to be a growing thing. I mean, I live here in Germany and uh, obviously bread is a massive, massive part of the culture. Breads, cakes, you know, baked goods and people proud, you know, it's part of the national pride. And more and more people are showing up gluten intolerant. And it happened to my wife. And I remember for a while we like, can't be, can't be, and no, it really looks like it is. And then all of the pushback, it's very interesting from the older generation saying, oh, that's just all, you know, hippie bullshit, blah, blah, blah. But you see so many people now who are not intolerant 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And as you say, it really does seem as though the process of bread making has become, if it's effectively turned it into a toxic substance, unless you're getting, yes. you know, very artisanal,
2: you know. Yeah, so,
1: so it's, I think it's a balance between gut health and unhealthy bread as such. You know, I do some work in Southern Italy and you know it's locally grown wheat it goes down to the mill it's milled that day it's a 12 hour brew it's slow cooked in big old ovens it comes out you know a loaf the size of a car wheel you know in the supermarket you get you know you buy a quarter of a loaf or half a loaf and it doesn't go off for days and then you just toast it and it's magical and you know the bread kind of lasts a week and I don't have you know I can eat quite a lot of that without getting into trouble Give me a slice just... of, you know, white pan toast here and, you know, it'll be on the floor. But this is just getting so hard because, you know, I I work with food and I also work in a, a county that produces a huge amount of food. And I'm fascinated by ingredients, but even the most simple thing that we made. So in southern Italy, you know, you buy the local wine for €1.50, €2 years in the supermarket. And that's the best wine because when they're making it at that price, one, it's local. And two, they haven't put any additives in it because, they, you know, they, they can't afford to and it's sell it at for price. Excellent.
0: Right, right.
1: Yeah, it's not traveling. So you can put 16 different substances in wine in small amounts and not put it on the label.
2: Okay. Wine should be grape juice and yeast. Yes, you know, and the
1: sulphur is normally burnt off on the top of a big vat to take the air out to stop the fermentation process. And it's it's so hard. I mean, you yeah. Listen, you've got me. You've got me. You've got me on a on a rant. But I just wonder how many people are are going through all sorts of things that they just don't realize that you know that's coming from our food, and also quite often because our soil is so depleted. A lot of refuse doesn't really have very much nutrient in it.
0: Well, you're in the hospitality business and I've eaten at Castle Leslie and the food's amazing. You, you need to look after your own health with this. I know that you take a lot of care with the food that you serve there and you're, and you're, serving, you're serving it in industrial sized quantities. I mean, you, you've got a lot of guests. You can have hundreds of guests there. How do you manage to dance that dance of making sure that all those people don't end up eating the poisons too?
1: We do we do the best we can. I mean, there's a lot more we'd like to do, and you know, there's certain things. You know, I would love to find a really good, you know, free-range producer of pork at scale, but we, you know, we can't find one. But it is changing, and more and more we do. I mean, things like the venison all just comes off the estate. I mean, that's as wild and as healthy as you can get, and it's us by making nature and doing what nature would have done in taking out, you know, the the old and the weak that that nature would have taken out. So, you know, that's that's really healthy meat. I mean if I had a magic wand, but then, you know, I'm an oddity in terms of food. Most people eat what they what tastes fabulous. Uh, you know, our taste buds are designed for salt because we need it. We can only taste five things. Mm. Sour, and that's our taste buds going, oh don't eat it yet. Plants been very clever and gone, no, don't eat us yet because our seeds aren't ready. You know, there's a brilliant book called The Botany of Desire that that really explains how Mother Nature has tricked us into doing what she needed us to do to continue to move seeds around the place when they were ready and drop them in other places to continue the you know, the the advancement of the of the plant species. You know, we think we're in control. (laughs) We're really not. So nature has sour to go, don't eat us yet, because the seeds aren't ready and it's got sweet to go oh do eat us now because we are ready so we eat it we eat the seed it passes through our gut we drop it somewhere else you know nicely wrapped in a little bit of poo as a natural fertilizer and and all animals do this and that gets you know nature gets us to spread the seeds around us and bitter is please don't eat me i'm poisonous i really don't want you to eat this seed and that bitter poison our brains have gone, no, no, I'm not going to, to do that. And that's the four things our brain tongues taste. And umami, which is that mushroom meat one. But apart from that, everything else is smell. All our other flavors are smell. And our brains, our, our brains confuse the two. We're so convinced that so much what we taste is what we taste. It's not, it's what we smell. That's why when you have a cold, you lose your appetite because nothing tastes. Food still tastes when you have chemo. The two things you don't lose are lemon, for some reason,
2: and, and ginger.
1: They are the two flavors that you can still. They're the last
0: flavors to go. Interesting. So, wonder why that. Being? No. Interesting that that's it's because they're basically medicinal. Do you think, or that's your I point?
1: I maybe came as such an unusual, you know, such an unnatural thing that they are just by chance the last things that, the last things that go. But it is yeah, it's one of the chemo tricks, definitely with breast cancer. And remember, all chemo drugs are different, but they're the two, the two flavors that you can that you can get. But the food industry has figured out what's known as the unholy trinity was salt, fat, sugar ratio, because you would never get salt and fat and sweet. Sorry, salt, sugar, and sweet. Salt, sugar fat together in nature, you wouldn't get salt and sweet together, salt, toffee, caramel,
2: mm.
1: and you get that nom, 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 nom.
0: Mm.
2: Mm.
1: There are foods that will hit the bliss point, tomato ketchup. You put you eat tomato ketchup and do a brain scan, it hit the, hits the bliss point. And so much of our food is designed to hit the bliss point and, and you just want more of it, but it's not designed for nutrition and it's not designed for soil health and it's not designed for gut, gut health. And then we wonder where we've gone wrong.
0: So talk to me about food production and soil health. You're, you're actually involved in the production of food there on the estate. What do you guys do on there for that?
1: Well, of course, How to keep the soils healthy. Oh, well, we're buying, we've a whole strategy done to start doing some major rewilding, regenerative farming and biodiversity friendly gardens. So in September, October this year, we have to be able to really step it up, but do it in a way that it's monitored so that we can show what's actually happening. Because, you know, the whole rewilding or, you know, nature regenerative. Sorry, there's something banging on my roof. <laughs> that whole nature-led regeneration is not always that well ma- uh, measured and monitored to be able to show the the real impacts of it. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. what it would
0: what are you do? What are you doing to 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 measure? What, what what? Okay. What What are you doing to measure monitor it? And what sort of scale are you doing it on?
1: Uh, we hope to do a good few hundred acres. Um, this new technology out, uh, where you can constantly monitor the carbon in the soil, both the available carbon and the inherent carbon. It's looking at air quality and water quality. Um, it's looking at at um. They, we've done all our baselines on all our different species. So to have a look at as it changes, what species come back, because about 30% of climate change they reckon is linked to loss of biodiversity. Well, some of the worst countries in Northern Europe or Ireland and the UK in terms
2: of biodiversity loss. We've
0: Why just is that?
2: Why is that? Uh, we didn't notice. I mean, I went to
1: scotland last year to look at a rewilding project and i find the highlands so beautiful and i'd known about the clearances the human clearances which were unbelievably horrendous i didn't realize that they just cut all the trees down and put sheep in so all those wonderful wild heather moors, which were wonderful for deer stalking for you know a handful of the the you know the wealthy elite actually just denuded la- nature i mean this, Salmon population is about to collapse in Scotland, you know, and that's their native fish. You know, it's just getting, we've, as somebody once, well, two things, somebody said it's a bit like flying a plane and throwing bits out the window that you've no idea what they were, wondering why suddenly, you know, at some point the plane crashes. And the other one, somebody said the other day, you know, even a parasite is clever enough to know not to, to bleed its host dry. And in Ireland, we wiped out our entire genetic stock of pigs. Every small holding in Ireland had a pig. They were just part and parcel. Pigs are nature's plows. They root all the time. They're always turning soil over, which allows seed to get in and all that natural regeneration. And somewhere in the 70s and 80s, because we didn't think they were of any value and we wanted to breed the Dutch, you know, the big fat white Dutch pigs that are, are
2: produce meat at high speed. We wiped out an entire species and nobody noticed. You know, it,
0: it's yeah. frogs and- I mean, cause when you go to Ireland, you look around and go, wow, it's beautiful. It's countryside. It's green. It's, it's, it's nature. There's hedges and woods and birds. And you don't, you don't go to Ireland and think biodiversity loss when you look around.
1: Huge, horrendous. So in our county alone, we the last ten years we've lost one percent of our hedgerows per That's ten percent of our hedgerows gone in one decade. You know, our air quality is not great with our intensive, with our intensive farming. We have monoculture grass because we've got one species of grass. So you know, you, you our you know our bee population is you know on getting critical I mean it's just thing after thing but because we look so green and verdant we think we're
2: okay we're not
1: you know we're we went down to less than one percent native woodland in this country in the 50s in this because we just cut down all of our native woodland anything that we had just got chopped up and burnt but we wanted to put a tax on standing timber native standing timber my dad was part of the campaign to go this is ridiculous you know we need our trees and then we plant seven percent of our island with Norway and Sitka which is a, a non-native commercial forestry and just because it looks beautiful it doesn't mean it's it's biodiverse rich yeah. and we reckon I mean the world oh, there's so many statistics globally that we probably only have between 50 and 60 years of crops left because we've, when we started to manage to harvest nitrogen into a stable form to be able to sell as nat- nitrogen-based fertilizer, it's too toxic for our soil and it's killing all the mycelium and it's killing all the living microbiology in the soil. So slowly all our soil is dying.
0: And That's an interesting connection, which I, I haven't heard put so directly before. It's, I just want to back up there for some of the listeners. So what we hear a lot about depleted soil health and we hear a lot about loss of fertility but it tends to get said rather than explained that's very interesting i hadn't heard anyone before now just use there's just an amazing
1: company called super soil and they've got a great video that that sort of that explains it so i've cogged it I, i've cogged some of it from from their video but basically over every acre of land there's about 30 tons of nitrogen in the air and okay. all the microflora and microbiology, sorry, in the soil would draw that down and feed it to the plant roots. And that kills the mycelium. And then you've got, the, no, well then you had this, no, in nature, that's what it would do. And there's so you have this amazing web underneath of mycelium, which mm-hmm. is kind of, they call it the wood wide web, but, you know, it was sort of nature's and highly intelligent system that it knew where to move water and where to new, move nutrients around the soil. Um, but the, the, the microflora would pull the, ox, the nitrogen basically out of the air. So a scientist, I think Huber, realized how this works. And they went, oh, my God, if we can capture nitrogen and put it in a stable form and put it into bags that we can sell to farmers, they can up the nitrogen value in their soil, which you do. But it's quite harsh. So it slowly kills the natural process within the soil and you become reliant on constantly putting in nitrogen that then starts to deplete the soil further. So an Irish company has come up with an amazing product called Super Soil, which feeds micro uh, flora uh, microorganisms to then start to naturally draw down the nitrogen out of the soil. Almost treating the soil like the
0: about. gut, like almost like probiotics in the gut microorganisms yeah. for the soil.
1: Yeah. I mean, you look at the number of microorganisms that we have in on our body and in our gut, and it's, you know, it's in a half in which we have no idea of what they are and what they actually do. And it's the same with our soil. So, so these are a lot of these, money actually selling
0: nitrogen. Right. The, uh, now, these, these regenerative farming practices that you're starting to do on the estate and food for production and so on, and taking that into the commercial side, because you Obviously, feeding it to people in the restaurants. There's many restaurants on on the estate. And so, okay. how much education are you giving the guests, now, and the punters it, who show up on to the estate? How, how much are they aware of this? Not much.
1: In two or three years' time, we hope to have an amazing exhibition space, and there will always be a need for intensive farming as such. But whether it is lab-grown meats, whether it is black soldier fly larvae, as a as a protein source, whether it's vertical farming, but one where we manage to get all the micronutrients into into the plants, you know, food is going to change absolutely massively. Tell us
0: about this this exhibition space that you're you're putting into the to the estate. What's going on with that? What what is that? We
1: want to do a really interesting space to tell our story of our relationship with people and planet. And also the, the understanding of the human body in a really fun way that you know can work for school kids and it can work for the neuroscientists and that's all I can tell you at this point. Otherwise, they would have to kill you, and okay. Eliana would
0: not be happy. Give us, give us a little bit, a, t- a <laughs> tiny tip, a tiny tidbit more. What, what, what is it? What, what is the mission of the estate with this in the in the coming years? What, what is it you want to achieve?
1: I think the irony is that this estate was always very innovative and, you know, you had amazing women and you had a whole series of very innovative men. And then, of course, you got the odd generation that just enjoyed life. But in general, you know, they were innovative and and thunk differently. And I don't know about you with a dyslexic brain. It doesn't really stop. You're always going, well, if nobody invented this and invented that, turn that upside down and we put that over there and you know it's 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 just so back to how can you do the best with what you have and by those around you
0: right well, and, what what is it that you're, you want to it's would this be an, an a sort of ecological educational we, we, yeah space we, gonna, similar to say eden in the uk or something like that or
1: yeah when well, no, we we've been and i think tim schmidt's amazing and and we've been talking it's how do you Tell the story in a fun way for people that just kind of want to float along the top. And how can you tell it in an educational way from children through to academics? How can you share research? How can you do food schools and and the learning right the way through? You know the different the different levels that get you know from I said fun and easy to you know to to, to serious food and 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 you know, gut health. Um how can you do that in? In, in, a, in a series of spaces, and technology allows us to do that now quite easily.
0: So, in the next in the next few years, we can come to Castle Leslie not just to experience beautiful nature, ride horses, eat amazing food, and look at incredible art and history on the walls of a stately home, but also to learn about soil health, ecology, and the land.
1: Absolutely, and our relationship. Because I don't know. About you, but last year with the hot summers, you know, really started to get scary. And yes. we're really, yeah. really starting to see it. And, you know, one of the stats is that by 20, if things continue as they are, by 2050, 80 million people will be on the moon yeah. every year through climate change. Yeah. And yeah. when you start to get into the conversation around climate justice and, you know we're on 12 tons of carbon roughly per head in Ireland, and my unofficial goddaughter is Somali. Her mother's an for Ahmed, is an amazing human rights campaigner around FGM, and you know Somalia is going into its sixth year of of desperate drought. You know there's parts of that country that you just wonder will they ever be livable again. You know it's it's you know it's parts of the world that are flooding. More and more of the world is becoming. Inhospitable and people have to move.
2: What's Um,
0: FGM? You said FGM.
1: Oh, you're a boy. Female genital mutilation. Okay. Yeah.
0: Google it. It is
1: probably the biggest killer of children worldwide that is totally preventable. Mm. You know, disease and war and famine are horrendous. The human
0: imagination of all the things that one could come up with. To pointlessly do that is one of the ones that, bo- mystifies me that that someone you have someone sitting around going you know what should we do this year oh yeah well, maybe we should yeah I mean, if, invent this thing called female genital mutilation
1: just going to even come up with that subjugation of women but that's a whole other indeed subject and you know it's it's part you can say it's part of a culture. And of course it is, but it's also how did it become part of that culture, you know, and it it was something that was sort of started by the Egyptians and spread into surrounding countries.
0: Yeah. But Yeah, well, I mean, we all grew up with, you know, institutionalized suffering that was sold to us.
1: At exactly.
0: We went can. to as we were beaten and that sort of thing, saying, well, this is the culture. And I think we all said, well, actually, that's not a culture I particularly want to." to no. participate in you're just making me participate and you know and yeah. I, you know
1: and as people in the western world we can't mm. sit there and wag the finger and go you know that's wrong all we do in the in the IFRIS foundation is help people on the ground who want to make a difference and mm. support them and what they and you know understand the ways they want to change their own culture you know this western thing of going in and going you know we're white we know better than anybody else is is a load of
0: well, sure, it doesn't like, work. It, it just life doesn't life. work. I mean, yes, I and I, from my years in human rights, it's it, it for sure. And and at the same time, I I feel and I think everyone knows that there are things that go beyond culture that are just purely human. But it's very easy to hide behind culture and say, "Oh, this thing is a is a valuable cultural practice," even though you know it kills people, and you know, therefore, you know. So and it's it's a dance one has to do. It's it. it, it this is something that you are involved in in in, in a large degree in, in your life. Is it? I met is human rights to work.
1: Well, I met them, an amazing girl called Ifrah Ahmed when her the, her the life story of her film. Sorry, when the film of her life story was being made, it's an amazing film called "Girl from Mogadishu," mm-hmm. and, and I said, "How can I help?" And I asked about. Or she have a, a charity or a foundation and she said she did, but it was sort of very much a Facebook page and she's an incredible campaigner who's done amazing things. So I just helped set up the sort of formal legal structure behind the foundation, got about eight, 10 years ago, so that the structure was there to really allow her to do her work and get the support behind her that she needed and the fundraising that she needed. And also, you know, the little bit of governance and measurement to be able you know, to, to to go to the bigger funders and go this, this work. So she came up with this amazing campaign called Dear Daughter, where parents, mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, pledge not to cut their child. Mm -hmm. And that's been incredibly powerful, giving people the power to say, as an individual, say, no, I don't want my child cut. I don't want my niece or my nephew, Pat, who you know, I'm looking after, because their no, their parents aren't here anymore, and it's very ground roots and you know, it's very much her campaign, and it's really starting to take traction. What's the name of her organisation? IFRA Foundation. I F R
0: I F. Sorry, I F R A H.
1: And her name. R A
0: H I F R A H Yeah,
2: foundation.
1: Ifrah. And uh, uh, Ifrah Ahmed, Mm -hmm. and it's called the Ifrah Foundation. And she was trafficked, long story, horrendous story. And she was trafficked into Ireland around probably 15 or 16 years old. And she actually ended up having the legislation, the law changed here and the legislation enacted before she even got her citizenship. She is one of the most phenomenal human beings I've ever met. And when she was on the campaign trail. And back in Ireland, she used to live with me. And I never, ever heard her once go, poor me, the world is a terrible place. She's just like, be a voice, not a victim. It needs changing. So how do we change it? And lots of amazing people got on board and in behind the foundation, a fabulous CEO, an incredible chair, somebody who's very senior in obstetrician who's just retired and from work and come on board. and. Just slowly, bit by bit, giving people the the voice to say, "No, this is the change that we want."
0: Do you no. do you do you harness the clientele of Castle Leslie in that educational and funding process?
1: No, because people come here on respite, and there is that balance between using the platform you have and mm-hmm. and uh, you know and and take you know and and abusing it for the want of a better word. So, on either World Women's Day or World FGM Day, which is the 6th of February, we will celebrate Ifra.
0: Just writing this down, World FGM Day is the 6th of February.
1: Yeah. I mean, Ifra got FGM under the Charter for Human Rights
2: before she was 30. Good morning. When her biopic was made.
0: And she is someone who's also found resilience. At Castle Leslie, as as so many have, interesting. No, um, well,
1: not res- not resilience respite. So, well, right, Leslie, yeah. She and the only reason she moved out ten days before before she had a baby, which turned out to be about four weeks before COVID lockdown, because she needed her own house and her own space. I have a, a one and a half bedroom house, so it it worked out well. And Sarah is amazing. Sarah's her daughter, who's She will be poor at this point.
0: And the IFRA Foundation is operating out of Ireland. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Didn't you say you've got one and a half bedroom house? People assume when you drive up to Castle Leslie and you see the castle and you see the lodge and you see all the other buildings in which things happen. You think, well, that must be where Sammy Leslie lives. And then, of course, we find out where you actually live is in Nadia. That's one of the best things I've ever seen for those, maybe I should should, probably shouldn't disclose how you get to here. because that's a bit of a secret within the castle. But suffice to say that you live in a very tiny sliver of the whole thing. The the rest of it is is, is given over to the enterprise.
1: Yeah, I live in an amazing little corner. I mean, it's small, but it's a fabulous little corner of the house, but you know, my bedroom was an artist's studio, so it's got windows on four sides, mm-hmm. and is is quite an amazing space to to hold up in, hold up in. But no, I've never lived in a normal. Anyone in my life, I've either lived in lorries in Australia with the horses, or an old cattle shed in in Dublin, or slept in stables in Sydney at the show. I've never or lived at work. I've never lived in like a normal house with a front door and a back door, and a bit, you know, not attached to anything. Else, or even a row of houses. I've never lived in a normal house.
0: Wouldn't know what to do. Well, yeah, probably go, look for, go into the garden and, and move into the shed like you've done. Yeah. The, yeah. I, I know that you also have an interest in special needs. Absolutely. and I know that you are beginning to think towards this with, with the Castle Leslie Estate as well. To talk us through what, what your ideas are there and, and, and what's happening with that.
1: A while back, I started to hear about this guy that had come up with this amazing thing called the horseboy method. And it just absolutely fascinated me at the healing power of, of horses. And we've got lots of land and lots of space and lots of horses. And I think when you grow up learning slightly differently, you know, and and, and you. Realise that we know so little about how the brain grows and functions and, and work. And it was anything that I can, it's back to, you know, the, all you can do in life is best with what you have. And by this round, we've got all these incredible things here. And then one day, by chance, I got locked behind a door with you and, uh, at a, an event for autism that somebody asked me to go to. So that's, I suppose, when the conversation really ramped up and I started to know more and more people whose children had been diagnosed going, if I can help in any way, it's the least I can, it's the least I can do.
0: What would you, what, what's, what's your vision when it comes to the estate with autism? What, what in your perfect world do you think? Oh,
1: absolutely. What will happen? We're lucky. That they built three stable yards on the estate, so the yard behind the lodge would stay pretty much as it is. The second yards become self accommodation, and the third yard on the back of the estate, I think that's where we we're going. We could create magical spaces. You introduced me to the incredible David Doyle. Went, we went down to Liz Kennett and looked at all the amazing things that he's achieved, and he's been up to us as well, going, okay, we have the space, we have the want, we have the, we have also the way to start to tell the the stories about, you know, how we learn and also how equine-based therapies, movement therapies, nature-based therapies can really work. So it's a huge learning curve for me. I know I'm an absolute novice in this field, but I just know that we've got the bits to be able to put together hopefully to do something magical and, and to, to really help people.
0: It's funny well, you I me- you mentioned any- David Doyle. I, I would I so want to get David Doyle on this podcast. He flatly refuses. He will not he will not speak. So I would chime
2: down on Friday and
0: why won't you speak? He is the, the most strangely modest man, as you know. So I want to just let listeners who might not know who David Doyle is, let's just say, tell you who David Doyle is. David Doyle is the current incarnation of the wizard Merlin. I met David Doyle in 2012. I did a a demo of Horseboy Method in Limerick and I got an email three years later saying, oh, you won't remember me. I was at that thing. I took your website to the Irish Parliament and 3 million euro and we're just building a state-of-the-art horse boy says, do you want to come look at it? I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, what did you say? And I went there and I looked at and I said, David, how did you do this? And as you know, David, he's one of these, he, he speaks very softly. He oh. said, well, you know, I just talked to these people. And subsequently he's started all these extraordinary autism centers. His daughter has very severe autism and also had a very good reaction through horses as did my son rowan and he's created an entire paradigm shift in, i would say in the mental health culture in ireland it's now creeping into europe so the fact that you're working with david doyle makes me as an autism dad so incredibly happy and i, I wish for
1: could... you i mean i wouldn't have wouldn't have met him if it wasn't for you
0: anyone who's listening, check out David Doyle, St. Joseph's Foundation. It's in Charleville in County Cork. You ever meet that man, it will be a treat. But yes, you know, this idea that an estate, it's it's very interesting to me because you, you drive, you know, you drive into Castle Leslie and you can feel as you drive in a shift in the atmosphere. And it seems to me that there is some sort of healing spirit to the land. It's, it seems to me is no, no coincidence that the Leslie family coming out of the explosive Reformation, Renaissance history of Scotland and England, then one bishop finds himself there by this beautiful lake and oh, in the 17th century. And no matter what craziness goes on in the rest of the country, and in fact, right there, you know the the, the the Cromwell and the English coming in and killing everybody, and then all the risings against the English, and then the tro- the first round of troubles, and then the second round of troubles, and, and the potato famine, and all of these things. So many estates burned, were uh, attacked, were hated, you know, with, with good reason by the lowest, not Castle Leslie. Castle Leslie always stood, and as you say, the the people there always seem to have been interested and. Un- unusually for their historical time in doing the right thing. And there you are. You weren't even supposed to inherit the estate, And then you...
2: I didn't it
0: inherit the it <laughs> Okay.
2: <laughs> I bought it.
0: <laughs> even more, you know, that the, the, there you were. And you had to buy the thing uh, and get it back on its feet. And, and it seems to have always... It, the, 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 and now you're getting it, you know, from... Okay, it's a luxury hotel, and yes, there's an equestrian centre. It's all fabulous. It's all fantastic. And at the same time, the restoration of soil, the sustainable agriculture, rewilding, and now human rights, special needs. You can feel it when you drive in. What do you think is the sacred nature of that land? I'm very happy to get as woo-woo as you want. I'm all about I don't know. What is it? I, what is it? Are there I, sacred... I'm... Are there sacred... Sites on there.
1: Iron Age Fort behind us. Navin Fort sees the hikings of Ulster is about 10 miles from us. But I don't know. I the lake is 70 feet deep. But I don't know. And I, I saw something the other day on Instagram where a guy put an electrode into the soil and on a little meter, nothing showed. He put he held one piece in his hand, he flip-flops on, nothing happened. He took his flip flops off and you could see the electric current shoot up. I would love to measure the electromagnetics here. I don't know what it is. It is a very special place. Maybe it's the light off the water. It does have a very, it has an energy all of its own. And it is a place all of its own. You know, I, you know, do what I can and what the whole team do, but it is a living, breathing thing. And you it, know it
0: it, it it seems to be a place that has encouraged people, strangely, generation after generation after generation, through a violent mystery, mm. to to sort of step up to their higher self. So it, it's it's hard not to ask. Are there ancient pilgrimage sites? Are there ancient druidic sites? are there age is that is that are there old stories?
1: Not. Well, there's cranodes on the top lake, but they would have been inhabitation. Not that we know. I mean, there is one small ancient site on Kilty Bags, a uh, small rath that got bulldozed out in the late 1800s. I've seen it on an old map, but I haven't found
0: a very sacred site. No on old the- stories about no. saints, no fairy rings, no occult.
1: Uh, I mean, the small stuff. St. Patrick came to this village and so. The- Vikings came here. The Iron Age settlements were here. The Vikings came here. St. Patrick came here. He built a small church here. I Not that I find, but it doesn't mean there isn't because mm. Christian faith was very good at wiping out earlier things. I don't know, but it is. it certainly is a magical place and it gets most
2: people.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a place where you come together. I've stayed there with my son. And well, the adorable Rowan. The adorable Rowan. And uh, he, he's hilarious because you so kindly put him up in one of the rooms of the castle. And he went to check and he said, I feel like Henry VIII. And he, goes, <laughs> and,
2: <laughs> <laughs> he
0: said, I just need to, I just need to, I just need to lay on this, on this bed with this canopy because it makes me feel royal. But that he came away saying, because, you know, he, he, he's autistic and he's sort of ultra sensitive and ultra authentic always he says Mm -hmm. he said dad there's there's something healing about that place I want to go back there there's something healing he said it it makes me feel better in my head
1: you know it's wonderful we can talk about stuff because in the old days it would be oh you know it's all woo woo and fluffy and all of the rest but I think more and more you know we're starting to show our our connection of nature Our loss of connection with nature is hugely detrimental you know, it's that getting into water. It's walking in mud in the marshes. It's, you know, it's sitting on trees and under trees. It's just being immersed in nature, which of course is our natural place of being. I mean, it takes of something like ten thousand years for one genetic change to to happen, you know, in a in a species. And we've gone, we've shifted so fast in the last few hundred years to being totally disconnected from nature. And I'm not sure that's healthy. So the more we can do to help people get re immersed into nature in in different ways, yeah, that's what we want to look at. And it was yeah. just how can we create yeah. healing place? How can we create respite? You know, how can we create respite for families with children? You know, with autism and, and other. What's the, what? But word am I allowed to use? You can't issues, difficulties.
0: Oh gosh, conditions I think is probably autism. that. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Sorry. Well, that's, it's so interesting, you know that the whole politically correct thing. I often ask Rowan, you know, do you have a word that you want me to use, like someone with autism? What? I said, Dad, I'm autistic. You know, yeah. Just, just, just say it. Just use the word.
1: So, exactly. So yes, it's you know, my dad did sort of things here during the troubles to bring kids from inner city communities in Belfast from opposite sides together and a sort of camping summer holidays and and just give them some proper outdoor fun and and forget about, you know, the troubles. And he did for a summer or two and then he got a phone call to tell him to stop. When you got those phone calls, you didn't not listen to them. So it is a very, very magical place. It absolutely is. And it's this sort of real little well, especially in this ever faster growing digital world where we are bombarded constantly with information and lots of stuff that's designed to, you know, do that four minute dopamine hit that just becomes mm-hmm. addictive and it's rewiring our brains and, and most people don't notice. So it's the, you know, the de-connect, disconnect and the unplug and do strange things like talk to the person you came away for the weekend with. We've no television in the castle, just I refuse to have them. You know, there's one swing that does, but they're, they either look like mirrors or pictures. And actually, they're because normally that sort of black hole of a television calls you when you come into the room to, mm. to turn it on.
2: No, it's
1: just being able to disconnect and reconnect with nature. And I think over the coming decade, we will learn more and more and more about the, the healing powers of connecting with nature. And I think we'll do it in a scientific way so that we can explain to I was going to say the numpties, the powers the bee that we need that connect. I was in Singapore recently, and they are very strong on their biophilic architecture, which is that whole thing of growing plants in and on buildings mm-hmm. and it you know reduces and you need air conditioning, it cools you know it, it the stresses it mental health it cleans the air it has so many positives and that's a small island with one percent of our land mass with the same population as ireland and you just smiled everywhere you just kind of fell in love with the city because it is so green it's just greenery everywhere they've been greening it's you know from the 50s because they had quite a visionary you know at at the time
0: yeah there's I just want to talk about that for a moment, actually. The greening of buildings. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a great proponent of it. And it's interesting how when people talk about carbon sinks and that sort of thing, people, and people talk about forests and all the things which we should have. But no one talks about ivy growing up buildings. Or I know there's a, a, a company in Spain, for example, that's doing moss-clad mm-hmm. walls. Um, mm-hmm. they, I, I read somewhere that a, a concrete bench Covered in moss actually absorbs more carbon than your average tree. These things I didn't know, but yet you see so few people doing it. And like here in Germany, I know that the moment I start to try and grow a creeper up my wall, all my nerves go, oh, whoa, it's going to do this, it's going to do that, it's going. And, and then I'm thinking, yeah, but I grew up, you know, in houses that had ivy on the walls, and the 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 house didn't seem to go anywhere, and and the wall didn't fall off. Where where's this 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 come from? this this? It depends, on, it depends on the wall.
1: Ivy is an incredible plant in so many ways, but if you've got soft moisture, like lime moisture, mm-hmm. it will actually get in between the stones and start to pull it apart. I mean, there's lots of creepers. I mean, we've one called Virginia Creeper in a building that's probably 150 years old, and it won't get into the moisture. So some will some attack buildings and others won't, but Moss is an incredible substance. Moss lives on two things, especially sphagnum moss. It lives on water and carbon, and it literally sucks carbon out of the air and uses it as its food source. And that's why, you know, having a lawn that's moss rather than monoculture grass is so much healthier in, in so many ways. And coating lots of things in, in moss absolutely cleans the air.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of want to do it on the side of my, my house here. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm campaigning for it. And I, I hope to be successful in my campaign with my neighbors. But it's, it's yeah, it's, it, it's interesting to me that there's this idea of the clean wall, the clean building, the clean, you know.
1: Well, look, look at biophilics. I mean, it's a whole science. I mean, there are certain plants that will break up walls. A sycamore tree plant near a building will break up, con- you know, will break, break up concrete Whereas other plants will, are all their roots will just sort of wrap around things. But biophilics, it's a it's a whole science. And do you have um, a particular book that you would recommend us on that biophilics? Is there anything that's on bi- biophilic architecture? Mm-hmm. Uh, not off the top of my head. Okay,
0: well I should go and look
1: it up. And it and it and it changes from place to place because there are things that grow well in different climates, and there's mm-hmm. lots of different climates. As well, and lots of different reading or lots of different building materials. So you would want to do it specific to the building materials used in in your area and the plants that grow happily in your area.
0: What are you doing at Castle Leslie with that out of interest?
1: With the new building, the new exhibition space, we want it to be as biophilic as possible. So, yeah. So what what would
0: you do? What 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 can you disclose? What 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 are you gonna?
1: I don't know yet it's at concept level so we haven't got into the design detail at this point that starts I think in September this year because we're working in conjunction with our tourist board and our county council and we want to do something that just hasn't been done here before but that's normal on the estate the estate built you know one of the first pumped water systems for an estate and a village that was steam driven so you turned on pumps and the water just popped out and you know, we did an integrated uh, integrated wetlands for sewage, where it's not just reeds, but it's twenty-two species of plant that eat all of the, you know, the pages and the slime, eat all the bacteria in the water. and the water has got half the nitrates and half the phosphates of the water already in the river. So, you know, nature is an awful lot of innovative solutions, and I, and you know, nature is an answer to has a, nature as a solution to every one of nature's problems. Because if it didn't, it would have silted up long ago, you know. Yeah, I've I've seen that that, that sewage
0: treatment plant on your on your estate, and it it does is it does it do the whole village, or is it is it just the? It does,
1: <laughs> it does up to, no, it does up to the equivalent of two thousand people, yeah, it's and it amazing. looks like it's a water garden, and the biodiversity in it is unbelievably high. Yeah, right, it's the like water meadows.
0: How long has that been in? Did you did you plant that? Did you put that in deliberately?
2: Yeah,
1: no, that was, worked with amazing, was we've very open-minded county council and worked with an amazing designer called Rory Harrington who designed it. And we worked with them and, and went, yeah, absolutely. Let's test bed it. Let's, let's be the first to build one of these in in a, in a historic setting for in a village and an estate. And that that's what we just want to do more of. And trialing and test bedding stuff as well. And we won't get everything right, but that's right. You know, then you share what works and what didn't work. And somebody else might go, oh, well, actually, if I turn that around and flip that upside down and put that over there, that might work. And then, you know, somebody has to be brave and be quite happy to make all the mistakes. We've just ended up in this world where everything has to be perfect and research the nth degree before we do it. And I mean... I think one of the the saddest things in our world is how insurance is just starting to rule the world. It's just stopping creativity. It's stopping people taking chances. It's stopping people experimenting because of the fear of not getting it right and getting sued if you don't get it right. Mm. You know, the downside of not trying in the first place is starting to outweigh the downside of something going wrong.
0: How do you cope with that? Because you're you're dealing with a high risk thing, at course, unless you, you still have an equestrian center that specializes in cross country riding. Cross country riding is an innately dangerous activity. Yeah. How do you We're deal glad. with this insurance issue?
1: We make sure it's as safe as possible. The jumps are designed to be as safe as possible. They're all under, you know, a certain height, all the landing takeoffs are kept in really good condition. You know, the horses are, oh, there's my wildcat. The horses are highly selected mm. to be able to make sure that there is, you know, as safe as possible. And still most people who come riding accept that there is some risk, but, you know, 1.35 million people die in car accidents globally a year. Yeah. And we still drive. And what's amazing is we teach people, we don't teach people to drive very well and we don't do the continuous upskilling. And I think could do an awful lot more in road safety, but because it's still, you know, profitable for the insurance industry, nobody's really got stuck in to make it as safe as it could be. And I did my regular license and then I did a class one HTB license for 40 foot truck and sitting in a week, in a, for a week in a cab with one drive, other driver and an instructor between us, either driving or w- watching and listening. I mean, I learnt so much compared to what i learned in my regular driving license which i did 40 years ago and nobody ever has checked whether i drive well or not you know you sh- we should do our driving license and come back a year later and do another bit and then next year do another bit over the first of five years have continuous improvement and then come back in every
2: five years for a chop because we learn bad words why did you learn to become a truck driver to drive a truck yeah Wait, I'm oh, sorry, horses, of course. The if you're property. going to transport horses
1: around the place, you need to be able to drive a truck and you could do in the south a, a rigid license and then an Arctic license, C and a D license, or you could go up north and for the same amount of time and effort, you could learn to drive a 40-foot. And I hate to say, they
2: are fabulous to drive. You still drove a truck?
1: No, um, you, you need to keep all your driving up and oh. also... Cyclists terrify me now. I mean, in the old days, you didn't have to watch out for as many people in your blind spot and cyclists that come up both sides of you. It's humanly impossible to be able to watch your left and your right mirror at the same time, as well as look at your windscreen. You, you know, at some point you will miss somebody on one side or the other because they're everywhere. I don't know how they drive through towns. I really don't take my hat off to, to guys who drive 40, but anybody that drives 40, but it's, uh,
0: it's, it's amazing. One thing I didn't expect to come out of this interview is that, was that semi Leslie is a truck driving mother. Um, I love it
1: when I go to get my hire car and they kind of look at the, the <laughs> section on your license to see, have you got a driving? And they're like, Oh, uh, <laughs> no, it's, it, it, it's good. But you know, it's back to continuous improvement and upskilling and we don't have it in, in driving.
0: So listen, I've I've learned a lot on this uh, on this interview. I'm going to go off and look at biophilic architecture. I'm going to go and look at super soil. Is that
1: yeah? Super soil is the Irish company. They're not that far from here. That is looking at feeding the soil and making the soil healthy so it can draw down the nutrients that it needs, um, rather and- than and getting it.
0: away from the nitrogen, the harsh nitrogen that's killing the mycelium, right? And
1: um, other within, within the soil. You mentioned so a book becomes dead rather than having, you know, a, a living soil. It literally just becomes a dead substance.
0: You mentioned a book. You mentioned two books earlier on, which I want to just draw people's attention back to. You mentioned a book called The Botany of Desire. Is that correct? Oh,
1: botany of The Botany of Desire by Michael Poland. Tell and us. A that. little
0: bit more about that.
1: And he wrote another book that he's very famous for, which I can't remember. And but the botany of desire is basically one of the principles behind rewilding. Except it it's what the botany did, what how we behaved and it's how nature taught us to do the things it wanted us to do, to move seed around
2: yeah, in different good.
1: places so plants could continue To to move because if seeds just fall beside the mother plant all the time, you just get this clump that's always fighting for the same nutrients. But if you know if a peach tree could get you to eat the peach seed and all, and then poo the seed out half a mile away, that peach tree had much more chance of surviving because it wasn't falling on the roots of of its parent and fighting for the same nutrients, and that why we taste in the way that we do, which is, sour, don't eat me, I'm not ready. Sweet, please eat me now. Bitter, don't eat me, I'm poisonous and I don't want you to to eat me. And uh, soldiers, our bodies need to look for, I was gonna say isotopes, no. Electrolytes? Electrolytes, thank you.
0: So this is basically how plants have domesticated humans.
1: Exactly. And it's back to our arrogance of humans, thinking, I'm going to see what Michael called, oh, The Omnivorous Dilemma, which is about eating plants or meat, but The Botany of Desire, it's very small little book, is just a real reminder about, we are so deluded in thinking that we are in control of this planet and we are in control of Mother Nature. We will be the fifth race of humanoids to wipe ourselves off this planet and nature will continue.
0: Hey, why break this tradition? You know? <laughs>
1: Because it's painful, it's a lot of unnecessary suffering. Indeed, and Indeed. that ability for nature to make us do what it needs is—it's it's also what it does to the rest of nature. You know, it's not just mm-hmm. us; the same rules behave. You know, yeah. apply. But yeah,
0: nature's very clever. Then you also mentioned a book. God is an octopus. Oh, op- ben God God is is an op- please tell us a bit God. more about that.
1: Oh, it's such a beautiful book, and I've just finished reading it. He's an amazing environmentalist. He's an amazing human being, and they very sadly lost Irish, their 15-year-old daughter, in a freak farm accident. And it is his incredible love for family, for his daughter. It's a grieving process. I do not know how any human being deals with the loss of a child. And have he you found healing in nature and went on to become an incredible campaigner for rewilding and nature led restoration. And it's his journey, but it's just written in a, such a beautiful way. I've okay. been asked for a biography and I'm going, oh my God, if only I could write like him
0: It's on the list. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get, God is an octopus, Ben Goldsmith, yeah. the Bosch of Desire, Michael Perlund. Okay.
1: Yeah, And then, yes, and then Wilding by Isabella Tree is a seminal book on letting nature, again, nature-led regeneration, and they've just done a book called Wilding, which is the how-to manual of wilding large and small in regenerating nature to be able to give it its place
0: and space that it needs. Wilding by Isabella Tree?
2: Tree, yeah.
0: Okay, great now. Okay. Thank so much. so
1: Rewilding things. was the first book and then Wilding is the manual on how to do it. Okay. And it's just yeah. written in a very lovely language. Very simple and easy to to do. And, and, is, and fun. is
0: that something that people who just have a backyard, regular? Absolutely. Could benefit. I couldn't then test it.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. A garden
1: or a big space.
2: It doesn't have or to be a lesbian state. No, it can be your pal. Fantastic.
0: And then finally, Dear Daughter, the IFRA Foundation, I F R A H. Yeah. FGM, female genital mutilation. People should look up that.
2: Absolutely. And there's, absolutely.
1: there's lots of ways to get involved or to support uh, the Dear Daughter campaign. is people, a mother or a father or an aunt or an uncle or
2: guardian come not to cut their child. And then if people want to
0: get in touch with you or get involved in some of the initiatives that Castle Leslie is involved in, I know obviously if they want to just come and sit in the hotel, they can look up Castle Leslie online and book. But if, if people wanted to get involved in the, the rewilding side, the soul regenerative side, mm-hmm. the, the special needs side, the human rights side, what, what's their best way? Should they contact um, you? What should they the, do? Well, the
1: Leslie Foundation, which we've set up, so a, a newly-fledged charity, amazing board of people and people coming on board. Or you'll find me there as well. So, yes.
0: The Leslie Foundation.
1: That. Yeah.
0: Is that a um, dot .org? Is that a
1: uh org and then also through the main website through castle leslie um, and, and is, is that be- castle
0: dot com castle um, and leslie with an IE a
2: family with a Y and Leslie with an IE Castle Leslie.com and the Leslie Foundation Is that? Is it
0: one word? The Leslie Foundation. Is it? Is it? Is it the? Is it the Leslie Foundation org?
1: i a funny feeling it's .dot ie rather.
2: Okay, let me. I'm going to look it up here on my phone. Get the the Leslie Foundation. I should know. God forbid one should know one's own website. I know. Foundation. Let's see. It is, you've got castlelesley.com, that we know. Let's see, the Leslie Foundation. Accept the cookies. Yes, I will accept the cookies. Boom. Here I see info at, you're right, it's I, info
0: at lesleyfoundation.ie. Info Leslie with an I E L E S L I E Foundation dot I E. So confusingly, I two I Es within the same. Terrible.
2: How well, often do you? How often do you do your own website? You know. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you don't spend days
1: googling yourself. But I've gone all red. Must be the light.
0: I think I did that last in. Two thousand or something like that. And then I, suddenly, I realized that I was profoundly uninterested in myself, but I was very interested in other people. Yeah. And that's sort of been how it's gone ever since. I find myself oh my rather boring, but I find people I would agree with like that. you absolutely fascinating.
1: I am really boring, honestly.
0: Well, I Serious. think you just, you just put the lie to that. Sammy, it's been, it's been a, a treat. Thank you for letting Thank us you. into the world at Carlson Leslie. I, I would I would strongly urge anybody listening put it on the bucket list, get your ass to Castle Leslie at some point, even if it's just to go have a bit of food and walk around that piece of magic. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary landscape and it's one of the few that is really sort of open to people, but it's so undiscovered and you you there is a sense of freedom there I remember. My son and I walking across one of the bogs by the lake barefoot and feel it in the, feeling the October mud coming up through our toes and just reveling in the sound of the birdsong and the deer on the hill. And to know that all this amazing work is being done there, Sammy, incredible. incredible. So thank well,
1: there's, you. There's, there's, there's lots more to do. We're only just starting.
0: Like, I can't wait. I can't wait to be back. I will be back as quickly as I can. And hopefully the crowds, after people listening to this podcast, I still get first dibs at the door. If you see me showing up, I got there first. So I'm sorry. You have to let me in first. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sammy, for your time and giving us a bit of a glimpse of this magical kingdom. kingdom. Well,
1: you're very welcome. And it's going to be an amazing journey over the next few years. And I hope lots of people come on board. I, can't, Thank I, you I, I, I you. cannot
0: wait to see what you're doing, what you do with the, with the ecological educational center, what you do with the autism projects. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be wow. fascinating.
1: And I'm just sorry you're not here on Friday with when we, when the architects are here.
0: I uh, know, particularly so one of those architects is a mate of mine and I do not get to raise a glass with you two, but I will, I will hold it in credit for yeah. the next time I'm there.
1: It's only the beginning. Yeah. No, all thank right you thank you for way
0: thank you see well rest well i will okay i will bye 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 thank you for joining us we hope you enjoyed today's podcast join our website newtrailslearning.com to check out our online courses and live workshops in horseboy method movement method and athena these evidence-based programs have helped children veterans and people dealing with trauma around the world We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.